The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We turn this evening to Habakkuk, to a three-week series on Habakkuk, chapters 1, 2, and 3, divides easily into three parts. We're looking at chapter 1 tonight, a prophet that is a very uh, relevant prophet for our day and age. And as if you haven't studied this book in recent years, you'll certainly see why as we go along. Habakkuk, chapter 1, reading through the first verse of chapter 2, hear the word of God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose strength is their God. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why, then, do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. 
I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. This is the word of God. What is God doing in the world? What is God doing in our nation? What is God doing in his people? And how does Scripture call us to pray? And how might God answer his people's prayers? And how might he be calling his people to wait in faith with patience and perseverance for the unfolding of his sovereign purposes in the world, in our nation, in the church, and in our own personal lives? What is God doing? It's a question that the book of Habakkuk has front and center, and you can hear it as we read the first two of Habakkuk's prayers or complaints, as they're sometimes called in chapter 1. You know, we're entering into a presidential election, won't be far off now, and we're going to hear about primaries and candidates. We're already hearing that in the news, and certainly after many campaign speeches, if you've heard these very much, you always hear that slogan tossed out, God bless America. God bless America. It's often used. And we may even say it ourselves. And it's actually a prayer, isn't it? God, please bless America. We might ask ourselves, what would it look like for God to answer that prayer? Certainly our minds might immediately go to the idea of the defeat of all of our enemies, the solution of all of our problems, the eradication of the national debt, You know, the stock market soaring to new heights, a booming economy with very low or almost no unemployment rate. You know, those are the kind of superficial ways that we might think that God would bless America. And I often think the typical person in the street or maybe even the typical politician doesn't think much beyond that in terms of what the Scriptures teach. But the scriptural answer to this question is that to pray for God's blessing is to pray for spiritual renewal, for spiritual revival of our own hearts individually and in the life of the church in a more broad way, and certainly to have an impact even on the secular society in which we live. Even if such revival and renewal would, would require God to chasten and discipline us, And this is what the prophet Habakkuk struggles with, the chastening hand of God in God's good and wise providence. I want us to see, first of all, tonight that the truth of God's sovereignty should encourage us in prayer. The truth of God's sovereignty should encourage us in prayer. Look again at verses 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, "'How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen?' Or cry out violence, but you do not save. And Habakkuk goes on to describe what he sees around him. Now, what we see as we begin this prophecy is that Habakkuk has evidently been praying for some time. Because he he begins his prayer, his complaint, with this phrase, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? Obviously, this is not the first time he's called for help. Obviously, he has been a a man of prayer, seeking the Lord in prayer. And 
He will talk. He will speak about God's judgments, God appointing and ordaining these things. He certainly is a prophet who firmly believes in the sovereignty of God. And as we look at his example, and as we think about the providence of God displayed here, I want us to be encouraged to pray. How difficult prayer is for all of us. And how we need to be encouraged when we see the state of our society, when we see things happening in the news, that we don't simply complain to others or we don't simply bemoan what's happening, but that as the people of God, we fall on our knees and we pray to God. Habakkuk was a man of prayer. And Habakkuk knew that God had chosen to work through his people's prayers. Now, when we think of prayer, we always should understand that scripturally, God is always the, auto, the ultimate cause of all things, the first and ultimate cause. But God has designed and ordained that he delights to work through his people's prayers, even though those prayers we might say are secondary causes. But that's a wonderful truth. God has chosen to work through our prayers. And an urgent need of our time is that we be encouraged to pray, even if it's along the lines of Romans 8, that we do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. That whole idea of us crying out to the Lord, not really knowing exactly how to pray for many things, but having the assurance that the Spirit takes those prayers And in a sense, he offers them up to the Father as a perfect prayer according to the will of God. We see from verses 2 through 4 that Habakkuk was deeply distressed by the state of his nation, by the state of the sin that he saw in the nation all around him. He's clearly been praying, but it seemed as if God has not answered his prayer or God didn't hear. But... It was clear that in God's wise and holy providence, God had placed Habakkuk and other believers in this dark and corrupt time. This was the time near the end of the 7th century B.C. Habakkuk's ministry was probably 620 to 605 B.C., about that time, not long after the reign of Manasseh, the most wicked king of Judah, and even though Manasseh, near the end of his life, was converted and turned to the Lord. All the wickedness that he had done could not be undone. And the nation's spiritual life was spiraling further and further downward. But Habakkuk did not just complain. He prayed. He complained to God, we might say. And what did Habakkuk see around him? Well, we see in verses 2 through 4, he cried out violence. He said, do you not listen? Look at the violence around him in his society, certainly violence of various crimes that were being done. The enforcement of the moral law was falling by the wayside as society was breaking down more and more. And then he could speak about injustice. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Verse 4, therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. You can't help but read verses 2 to 4 and just think 
how pertinent it is to our society and to our day and age. We become desensitized with the news day after day, and so we aren't even shocked many times at what we see around us. But you think about the violence in our culture and society. You think about abortion and euthanasia, which is advancing. You look at and you think of the battered wives and children and the abuse that goes on. Or even the road rage on the street, and you hear incidents of people just jumping out of their cars and taking someone and hitting them, or taking a baseball bat to their car or shooting someone, murders, human trafficking, even in the United States, going on. We read about injustice, of course. There was injustice in Habakkuk's day, and you think about the courts that are just overworked nowadays, and how so often it seems that the court system is upholding the offender and supporting his or her rights rather than the victim of the crime. It doesn't take much to make connections between Habakkuk's day and ours. And the inner temptation to unbelief that we all face is the temptation to prayerlessness because we don't believe God's at work. And we say to ourselves in some way, what might God be doing? Well, we know that God is doing all his holy will. And Habakkuk didn't have Romans chapter 1. He certainly knew something of the judgments of God's being revealed. Romans 1 makes it very clear that God doesn't always destroy sinners immediately in their sin. In fact, he rarely does that. God rarely destroys nations immediately when they spiral down into sin. But he also doesn't necessarily bring reformation or revival or renewal as well. Often, what Romans 1 says is that God gives a nation over or gives a people over to their their corruption and sin so that there is a, a slow but sure process of the unfolding of God's present judgments being revealed. And to me, there's no doubt that we see that in our nation now, that the sins of our nations are bringing upon us increasing judgments of God. Now, as we read through the book of Habakkuk, and even this evening, we're going to see that there was a clear answer. God told Habakkuk what he was going to do with the nation of Judah. We do not know what is going to do, what God is going to do with us. God made the answer clear to him. And we see that answer in verses 5 through 11. Look at the answer to Habakkuk's first prayer. Verse 5, God says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Doesn't that, didn't, if you were receiving that for the first time, wouldn't you be amazed? that God is saying, look at the nations, look at the nations around you, and prepare to be astonished. And your ears would prick up and you'd think, what's the Lord going to do? Is he going to make Judah like it was in Solomon's days and just uh, spreading out across the Mediterranean world in the extension of its boundaries? Well, the opposite. Verse 6 God tells what's going to be so stunning. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth. 
And then there's this description of a culture and a people and a nation who are completely ruthless. And history bears this out as they swept across the um, Middle East of that time. And Habakkuk, in this vision that God gives him, there are all these descriptive phrases that you see. Horses, swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Uh, they, They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. Their hordes advance like a desert wind. The Babylonians, God's saying, is going to sweep over all the nations of the immediate area, and Judah is going to be one of them. Judah is going to fall. Verse 11, then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. Now, Habakkuk heard that and thought, well, that doesn't make sense to me. What would be the natural thought that would come to your mind? Well, you obviously can look at verse 12 and begin reading Habakkuk's second complaint or his second prayer, and it has to do with Habakkuk being perplexed that God would use a more sinful nation to chasten Judah. Why would God do that? How could God do that? And so he comes to his second complaint, and it comes to the second point that I want us to see here. The truth of God's faithful love should help us to cling to God when perplexed. The truth of God's faithful love that we're going to see revealed here in Habakkuk's second complaint, the truth of God's covenantal love to his people, his faithful love, should help us to cling to God when perplexed. And that's what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk doesn't understand how God can use the Babylonians to judge the chosen people of God but it's part of God's wise and holy ways. And Habakkuk, in this complaint, in this prayer, you see him clinging to God, cleaving to God in prayer, even when he is deeply perplexed. That's a very important truth for us to keep in mind. Whether it's to be applied in a national kind of corporate way, as you see when you look at what the headlines bring every day in the news, or maybe... You need to apply that truth in particular to your life as you see God's sovereign will unfolding for you and you struggle with wondering what God is doing. There's a sense of being perplexed at the inscrutable ways of God. And what we see Habakkuk doing is an example for us because Habakkuk clings to the faithfulness of God, the character of God, even as he doesn't understand what God is doing. Look at verse 12. This is what Habakkuk says to the Lord when he received this answer that's really a terrifying answer. It's an answer that none of us would want to get. It's like if we could pray to God and ask God, what are you doing? And he would say to us, yes, look at what's happening with terrorists in the world, and actually the nation of Iran is going to totally destroy the United States in a very short time. We would be stunned. But God, how could you do that? How could that be part of your good plan? Look at what Habakkuk says in verse 12. 
O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Well, let's just stop right there. Notice how Habakkuk clings to the character of God as the Word of God has revealed him. Habakkuk was a man who knew the Word of God. He knew the Pentateuch. He knew the first five books. He would have known Deuteronomy 28, 30, where the covenantal curses and blessings of God are revealed, that if the nation seeks God and follows the Lord and trusts in Him and loves Him, then they will be blessed. But if they turn from Him, they will be cursed. He probably would have even known Isaiah's prophecy before him, which prophesied about God bringing the Babylonians down upon the nation. Here was a man who knew God's word, and he stands on these foundational truths about God. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? Speaking about the eternal character of God. And then he makes this personal statement, which brings out in a, in a beautiful way, this idea of the covenantal love of God, the faithful love of God. He says, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. That is a declaration of Habakkuk's personal faith in a covenantal God, and it's also a standing on the truth that he knows, and that is the people of God will not ultimately perish. God will keep them. God's church, God's people will never be destroyed from this earth. He will preserve them. Even at the worst of times, he will preserve a remnant faithful to him. And so Habakkuk stands knowing that God is for his people. God never forsakes his own. And then in conjunction with that, at the end of verse 12, he can say, O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Clearly, standing on the truth of God's sovereignty. But even as he does that, he holds before God in the rest of this complaint or prayer his perplexity. Look at verses 13 to 17. Look how he describes this. He says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So he's thinking of the, of the perfect holiness of God And in light of that, maybe that's a verse that you've used many times in evangelism or describing the perfect holiness of God. Why then, Habakkuk says, do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And then he goes in this extended analogy about uh, people being like fish in the sea and so forth and the wicked pulling them up by hooks. Probably, this is even an illusion that takes into the fact that when the Babylonians did attack, when they swept across and when they destroyed nations, often they would uh, do these horrific, uh, cruel things like putting hooks through everyone's lower lip as they chained them together in a line to be marched off into slavery. And so this idea of the hook and the idea of the net And then the Babylonians uh, living in luxury by their net. In other words, by the fact that they destroyed nations to live off of what they received from them. And they worshipped their net. They were idolaters. So Habakkuk is saying, 
this doesn't make sense, God. These people are so evil. They're idolaters. They worship their nets, in a sense. But the book doesn't end there. Now, tonight we're not going to look at all of it, but God's answer to Habakkuk in chapter 2 is essentially that famous verse, Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And by the end of chapter 3, Habakkuk's song, we're going to see Habakkuk being able to triumphantly declare, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Even in the prospect and looking at this uh, vision of complete desolation of the land, Habakkuk will be lifted up in faith. So essentially, this truth of holding to God's faithful love even when we are perplexed, comes about as we live by faith. Faith is always called to wait on the Lord, to wait rather than to have all the blessings now. And that is a character of walking by faith. And so you can apply this truth to your life as well. When you think about seeking the Lord in prayer, when you think about trying to understand God's ways, whether in a national way, whether in a personal way, to realize that you can rest in God's faithful love in Christ. And it just makes me ask, have you experienced the covenantal faithful love of God through Jesus Christ? It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that the love of God is revealed. If you haven't come to him, then you need to come and cast yourself upon him. But my third point arises from an overview, then, of chapter 1. And my third point is this. The example of Habakkuk here should teach us our great need to repent of spiritual decline and to look to God's mercy in Christ. Habakkuk's chapter 1 should teach us to repent of spiritual decline and to look to God's mercy anew in Christ. Briefly, think of both of those. First, to recognize and repent of spiritual decline. Habakkuk saw spiritual decline all around him. The problem was, this was the very people of God. This was the nation chosen by God for himself. And there was such clear spiritual decline in his day. But, likewise, there is very spiritual decline in our day, not only in terms of this uh, secular culture in which we find ourselves, but also in the church. Let me read a quote to you about the church, and you can guess when this quote was written. I wonder what our fathers would have thought 40 years ago if they could have had a preview of the state of the Christian church today. They were unhappy enough about things even then. They were already having meetings for revival and for seeking God. If they could see the church at the present time, they would not believe their eyes. They could never have imagined that spiritually the church could have sunk so low. Yet God has allowed this to happen It has been an unexpected answer. We must hold on to the hope that he has allowed things to become worse before they finally become better. As you might guess, that wasn't written in our day. That was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very famous 
preacher in England writing in the year of my birth, 1953, and speaking about the state of the church of his day. Well, what are we to say about our day? Certainly, things are not well in the state of the church. There certainly are hopeful signs. In the publishing industry, there are various hopeful signs in the thousands of young men coming out of solid Bible-believing seminaries. But still, overall, there is much spiritual decline in the church of our day. And we need to say with Habakkuk, O Lord, how long? How long until you have mercy? We do not know what God may do in terms of our nation itself. We do not know, but we do know that God will preserve his people on the earth. And who knows what God may yet do before Jesus Christ returns in terms of bringing revival. God's hand of judgment is on our nation to some degree. There is no doubt about that. But as the church, we must realize that judgment must begin with the household of God. Look at the church. Look at the prayerlessness of our church. I'm not saying that we aren't good in many ways as a church. I believe that we're seeking to hold forth God's word. But how prayerlessness and complacency quickly overtakes all of us. I know it in my own heart, so I know it's true for most of you as well. And we need to get on our knees and recognize the spiritual decline to whatever degree it's come into our own hearts and to deeply repent of that prayerlessness and complacency and worldliness that has come into the church. It's interesting that we could say, aren't other nations worse than we are? In one sense, yes, that's certainly true. There are completely unbelieving nations that are in the world. But at the same time, we as a nation and as a church need to remember the great privilege, the great gospel light our nation has received for generations. And to whom much has been given, much will be required. And so we must fall on our knees and say, oh Lord, turn us that we would turn to you. The second part of that is our great need to look for God's mercy in Christ. In chapter 2, the Lord will tell Habakkuk that the righteous will live by faith. And then in verse 14, the Lord says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And certainly in the gospel New Testament age, What amazing spreading of the gospel we've seen since Habakkuk's day. And our need, as always, is not simply to turn from our sins and repent, but as part of that, to turn to the great mercy of God and to be revived and renewed. God is on the throne. God has revealed his mercy in Jesus Christ. There is always grace at God's mercy seat. And so even if we live in dark and difficult days, and no matter what tomorrow may bring for our nation or for your life or my life individually, thanks be to God that we can cast ourselves on God's mercy in Christ and stand in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do seek to humble ourselves before you. We know that we need your grace every day. You know our sinful hearts and the way that we tend to want to coast. 
the way that we tend to uh, get by on yesterday's or last week's grace. And we pray that you would help us to freshly seek you, even in this hour, even tonight, even tomorrow, that we would turn to you anew in deep repentance, in turning from our own sinfulness and individual sins, and that we would seek Jesus Christ that you would fill us anew with the love of Jesus Christ, that we would meditate on the glory of Christ and on his love poured out for us on the cross. We thank you for your mercies and your faithfulness that is new every morning. And even as Jeremiah could write that, looking at the desolation on every side with a nation destroyed, we thank you that likewise we could stand in your good and wise and holy ways and know that you are our God. In Jesus' name we pray.